Um, as you know, uh, loss of functional beta sum has a major problem with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes. And even though the pathogenesis might be slightly different, it ends up uh, causing beta cell, both ending up causing beta cell apoptosis. So in type 1 diabetes, you also have the autoimmunity that's underlying, uh, leading to inflammation and beta cell destruction, and then beta cell death. In type 2 diabetes, you have a combination of insulin resistance uh, and beta cell dysfunction, insufficient insulin production, that then leads to hyperglycemia, glucose toxicity, and then in turn to uh, beta cell apoptosis. And it, we wanted to try to figure out what factors may play a role in beta cell apoptosis and try to use the fact that um, hyperglycemia toxicity causes beta cell apoptosis to figure it out. Uh, and we took a very simplistic approach, and this is now a number of years ago, where we just took human islands and exposed them to low or high uh, glucose and did a, a microarray, gene expression microarray. And we found that thiodoxin-interacting protein or TIXNIP was the most upregulated gene in response to glucose, more than tenfold upregulated in response to glucose. Now, we also uh, looked in greater detail how glucose is regulating TIXNIP expression. And again, to make a long story short, we found that the promoter of the TIXNIP gene contains a carbohydrate response element consisting of these two E-boxes. And then in response to glucose, uh, CHREBP is recruited to uh, this uh, carbohydrate response element. It then uh, runs along P300, and then um, that P300 not only acts as a co-activator, but also as an histone acetyl transferase. Um, and with that activity, it assimilates histone H4, opens up the chromatin structure, and allows uh, the RNA polymerase 2 complex transcribe and you end up with more uh, TXNF gene expression. Um, but what is thiodox interaction protein? Well, it's a 50-fold open protein. It's encoded in chromosome 1 in humans and 3 in mice, and it's highly uh, conserved across species. It's uh, ubiquitously expressed, I have to mention that. Um, it's been known to function by binding and inhibiting thiodoxin, as the name says, but there's also some thiodoxin-independent mechanisms and uh, you'll see why this is important uh, a little uh, later on. And you can see down uh, the schematic that when TXNIP binds to thiodoxin, thiodoxin is no longer able to um, act and reduce pro oxidized proteins, so the net effect of TXNIP is an increase in oxidative stress for the cell. So we next wanted to see whether TXNIP indeed induces beta cell apoptosis, and we created a um, beta cell line overexpressing human TIXNIP, and indeed we saw, uh, saw that the different uh, apoptotic markers were increased. Here you have the Bax to BCL2 ratio that was dramatically increased in the TIXNIP overexpressing cells. That was also true for caspase 3. And then, uh, then here you can see the tunnel staining, the way more uh, dark brown tunnel positive nuclei and the TIXNIP overexpressing. Uh, cells as opposed to the LAXC control cells. And then, uh, again, to make a long story short, we also looked at what apoptotic mechanism is causing this effect, and we saw that it's through the mitochondrial death pathway. And just shown here, you see uh, that with the cytochrome C release, 
in uh, the control cell, cytochrome C, is within the mitochondria where it belongs to, but then in response to the tixin overexpression, it has been released into the cytosol, uh, as you can see in the last slide. So we then also looked in vivo and wanted to see whether uh, diabetes uh, induces tixin expression in the eyelids. And for this, we used, in this case here, the BTBR or the OB mice. As you may know, uh, on the BTBR background, the leptin OB mutation causes not only insulin resistance and obesity, but also overt diabetes. So they become really overt diabetic with very high blood glucose levels. And you can see that in the lower panels, you see they're, they're very obese, over 50 grams per mouse. And then the blood glucose levels is close to 500 milligrams per deciliter. So it's so very severe. It's probably considered one of the most severe forms of type 2 diabetes if you want so in, in the mouse. And so, um, looking in those, in those mice, uh, we saw that uh, in their eyelids they had uh, dramatically increased tixin protein levels uh, shown in the upper panel. And interestingly, that was also associated with an increase in uh, quick caspase shrink, suggesting that, it, in fact, it, it really uh, induced uh, apoptosis. Now, more importantly, we wanted to see whether the opposite was true, too, namely whether tixin deficiency could protect against diabetes. And in order to do that, we uh, generated uh, double mutant mice, congenic uh, <coughs> mouse, BTBR leptin, OB, OB, Tixnip, HCB, HCB. So the HCB is a natural occurring, HCB19, natural occurring mutation of the Tixnip gene, and so it's like a whole body knockout mouse. So these mice, the bottom line is they have no leptin and no Tixnip. Um, and as you can see in the, in the, in the green line, uh, that's the regular. OBOB, they become very diabetic around six weeks of age and then they, it, they get only worse. Uh, and in fact, I show you here 12 weeks, but uh, the BTBR OBOB, they typically die around 14 to 16 weeks of the diabetes. And then in the, in the white triangles, you see the lean control mice. And then in red are the double mutant mice. And as you can see, they maintained normal blood glucose levels and in fact were even slightly lower than the lean mice. And I'm showing here only 12 weeks, but we also had a subset of mice that we uh, went on for six months, and they uh, maintained normal blood glucose and survived happily ever after. So we were really able, by this double mutation, by eliminating TSNP, to rescue them completely from the very severe uh, type 2 diabetes. Uh, and then when you look at the cross-section of the pancreas, you can see why. You see here in the... In the Top one, uh, destruction of uh, the insulin-producing beta cells and the and the regular OBOB and the you know, higher magnification. See the destruction that's going on in the beta cell in the islet. And then uh, in the double mutant mice, you see nice-looking uh, insulin-containing uh, islets. Insulin is, is in blue here, and you see that the islet is is completely intact. And then when we looked at apoptosis by tunnel, we had this dramatic more than 50-fold reduction in apoptosis uh, in the double mutant mice uh, lacking tixnip. And that also translated into uh, an increase in, in beta cell mass, uh, as shown here by morphometry. So one question, obviously, would be, did that affect in any way uh, the weight? Um, and actually, it, it did, but not, it did not reduce it. So when you look here at the, at the, um, at the bars, the, the red one is the double mutant mice. Um, so 
by lack of texting, there were even more obese than the regular OB-OB, and that's true by weight and also by fat pad. Um, and you can see, I mean, those are huge uh, mice. They're you know, close to 80 grams, and I'm close to cause them little rats. I mean, they're, they're really big. So that pretty much excludes weight loss as a factor that could explain the improved glucose homeostasis that, that we've seen. Now, I also have to say that um, Rich Lee's group found very similar results in just a, in a slightly different model where they used actually not mutant mice, but tick knockout mice and put them on a high-fat diet and they, they saw pretty much the same. So no matter how you uh, mix up the models, it, uh, the effect stays the same, actually confirming uh, that this is what's going on. Uh, now we also uh, looked at um, a beta cell specific deletion of TixNib, we generate those BTKO mice, and in here we uh, looked in an SDZ model as a model of type 1 diabetes, and in gray you can see what you would expect with SDZ, you see an increase in uh, blood sugar levels. Uh, however, in the, in the BTKO mice, uh, with, treated with the same uh, multiple low-dose SDZ injections, their glucose levels remain normal. And again, when you look at the cross-section of the pancreas, you see pretty much elimination of all the, the insulin-producing beta cells in the LOX-LOX control mice, but you see nice-looking islets with plenty of insulin-producing beta cells in the BDKO mice. And again, similar to what I've shown you before, um, there was a dramatic decrease in apoptosis. You see the apoptotic nuclei in the LOX-LOX control, but not so much in the, in the BTKO, suggesting again that the, the lack of TixNet just in the beta cell was sufficient to protect against diabetes and did so mainly through um, decreasing the level of apoptosis. Now, TixNib also has a number of, of extrapancreatic effects, so not only the beta cell effect uh, that I showed you. It has protective effects in, in myocardial ischemia with perfusion and also uh, in diabetic cardiomyopathy, we've seen it, and, and Rich Lee's group has seen it as well. It enhances glucose uptake in adipocytes and human myocytes, and it also reduces hepatic glucose production. So obviously these things may also contribute in the whole body mutant mice to the improved glucose homeostasis, and in fact, I don't show it here, but we did see that they have improved glucose tolerance and improved insulin sensitivity. But obviously that does not play a role in the, in the beta cell-specific knockouts. And then also um, TixNip does... Um, <coughs> The TixNip deficiency does lead to decreases in inflammasome activation, and again, this uh, could play a major role in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes that uh, is associated with some inflammation. Now, we were obviously very interested in trying to find a pharmacological tool that we could use to inhibit TixNip expression. And mainly, as I'll show you in a moment, we wanted to be able down the road to not just prevent diabetes, but reverse diabetes. Because as you can imagine, when you, patients come to the clinic with diabetes, they have the disease already. Uh, we don't, we're not in the business of preventing it necessarily, but rather treating it. So we wanted to have something that will work even after the onset of hypoglycemia and diabetes. So anyhow, again, to make a long story short, we found that verapamil, which is a blood pressure uh, medication and a calcium channel block that acts specifically on the L-type calcium channels, uh, provides a pharmacological tool to inhibit tixinib expression. And you can see in the first panel the uh, dose response in human islets where verapamil you know, really nicely reduced tixinib expression. 
And then in the uh, panel here, uh, also in vivo in mice, when mice were given ratmelin to drinking water for two weeks, their tick sniff expression significantly decreased uh, in, in their eyes. So with that, we set out to kind of do the same thing that I showed you before that we did with the genetic models. And here we used again uh, first the SDZ model. When we um, treat with SDZ, we get the destruction of the, of the beta cells shown here. But when also treated with ratmil, you have preservation of the eyelid's structure and nice beta cells that produce plenty of insulin. And again, as much as you see a lot of apoptosis in the SDZ ones, that is, the, the beta cells are protected uh, in the uh, STZ plus rat mill, and there's this uh, significant decrease in apoptosis as shown by Tana. Now, for this, we also uh, just looking at the blood glucose levels, just as a reminder, so this is multiple low-dose STZ for five days, and then we only start the rat mill actually here uh, at day five after the STZ is done, and in a white, you can see the increase in blood glucose levels uh, in the control, but not so much in the retinal treated, so they maintain still normal blood glucose levels. And you can also see the reduction in tick snip levels uh, that was induced by the retinal treatment. Now we also looked again in a type 2 diabetes model, and here again we used the, the BTPR-OPOV mice. You see again how uh, severely diabetic they become here uh, in the in the regular ones, untreated controls. Um, however, the ones that receive Ravnil, even though the Ravnil in this case was not able to completely prevent hypoglycemia, they were significantly lower throughout uh, the whole time period. So they maintain much lower blood glucose levels. And then also, as I mentioned before, they, it also has effects on uh, glucose tolerance and insulin sensitivity. So here by insulin tolerance test, there was actually an improvement in insulin sensitivity um, in the retinal treated uh, animals as well. So then we finally were able to do the experiment that we actually wanted to do, and then we uh, make mice diabetic. And so here, day 15, uh, we had three groups. They were all diabetic with blood glucose levels around 300 milligrams per deciliter. And then we had um, the ones that, the control ones in the white bars, a low dose of the retinal and the regular dose of the retinal. And as you can see, the, in the white bars, their glucose got even worse over time. Um, so their diabetes progressed. However, when we treated with, with retinal, we either kind of reversed it a little bit or reversed it completely. So these guys had, um, the, the glucose levels were not significantly different from the control from the beginning. Um, and so we were able to bring them back down from the hypoglycemia to normal glucose levels by starting the retinal treatment after they already had developed overt diabetes. And that obviously was quite exciting to us. And again, looking at the cross-section of the pancreas, <coughs> it became also quite obvious why that happened. Again, pretty much uh, depletion of the insulin-producing uh, beta cells uh, in the controls. But then here, uh, at 25 days, you see still nice-looking eyelids with plenty of insulin uh, in them uh, in the ones that were treated with the retinal. Now, as you know, insulin secretion does require uh, calcium, and so one concern was that uh, if we treat with, with um, the calcium channel blocker, we may get uh, 
prevention of beta cell apoptosis, but if they're not functioning properly, it's not going to help the animal or the patient. So we also looked at, at serum insulin levels, but they were actually significantly elevated in the retinal-treated uh, animals, suggesting that, if anything, if even there were a slight inhibition of secretion, the increase in beta cell mass was by far able to compensate for it um, and uh, still improve overall insulin uh, levels. So suggesting that we wouldn't have any particular detrimental effect in terms of the insulin secretion. So to summarize so far, showing you that glucose and diabetes increase tixnip expression in beta cells in primary mouse as well as human eyes, and this effect is mediated by CHRABP. A very slow showing you that tixnip induces beta cell apoptosis and uh, it does so by promoting the mitochondrial death pathway. And then tixnip deficiency protects against diabetes, both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and it does so even in the face of severe obesity. And that's obviously very relevant too, because in a way it unlinks diabetes from obesity. Again, from a clinical aspect, you know, we often have patients with especially type 2 diabetes that are obese and we tell them to lose weight, but that doesn't always work. Actually, most of the times it doesn't. And so we would want to have a tool that works even in the context of obesity, and at least this seems to be one that, that might work in this case. And then I've also shown you that calcium channel blockers such as Rapamil provide an effective tool to reduce beta cell tixnip expression and enhance beta cell survival and we're even able to rescue mice from diabetes. So that could uh, represent a novel therapeutic approach. And then finally, this is a proof of principle that pharmacological downregulation of tixnip can protect against diabetes and even improve overt diabetes. And so with that, um, we actually, well, I should go back one second. So um, the one question we had and we have to ask ourselves, obviously, is that, as you can imagine, a lot of patients with diabetes also are hyper hypertensive, and some of them will be on, uh, on Rapamil as a blood pressure medication. So if it really uh, does something beneficial to the diabetes, how come was that not noticed before? And so we started skimming through the literature, um, and there was really not a whole lot to be found, except for this one thing that was in best trial. And the reason for that is mainly that when, when people looked at, um, especially in the old days, Rapamil has been out and safe and FDA approved for the last 30 years, when people look at antihypertensive drugs, um, they would particularly look at endpoints such as cardiovascular events, heart attack, uh, stroke, uh, or death, and not so much diabetes. Uh, in contrast, the best trial actually did compare different blood pressure uh, medications and their risk for developing diabetes, and they found that newly diagnosed diabetes was uh, significantly less frequent in the retinal arm. So at least that gave us some indication that there might be something also uh, in humans going on. So again, kind of taken together with that, we, we decided to embark on, on this new clinical trial, and we're lucky enough to get greater F funding for it, uh, and it's called repurposing of retinal as a beta cell survival therapy in type 1 diabetes. It is a double-blind placebo-controlled uh, study, and it's focused on new onset type 1 diabetes within three months of diagnosis uh, for adults age 18 to 45. Uh, and subjects receive oral rapamil or placebo once a day for one year. And the primary endpoint is functional beta cell mass 
that we measure by mixed meal stimulated C-peptide, which is as good as we can get uh, to in, in humans. <coughs> and then secondary endpoints are insulin requirements as well as glucose control. Everyone gets onto an insulin pump and also gets CGMS, so continuous glucose monitoring system. So we can not only look for those numbers, but then also for uh, glucose excursions, because as you can ima imagine, that's uh, very relevant for type 1 diabetics as well. And so that's been, that's been very exciting. We, we started um, earlier this year. We have currently 15 people that are, have already been on placebo or the drug. We obviously don't know. Um, we, for a while we thought that, you know, maybe blood pressure medication, we checked the blood pressure very carefully and maybe we'll know who's getting what. But, you know, actually, unfortunately, good for the study. It is truly double blind. I still don't know because we don't see differences in blood pressure. So we really can't tell who's getting the drug and who isn't. Um, so we'll have to wait for, uh, we guess, three years until we are allowed to, to break the code and, and, and see um, who received what. So we're going to continue to uh, recruit. We're recruiting throughout, uh, throughout the nation and probably till um, end of next year or so uh, we'll still recruit patients for this, for this trial. Um, so, there's, there's a question. Yes. What dose are you using that you're not seeing blood pressure? We, we titrated, so, and the, the reason is we're starting with 120, 240, and then 360 over, over three months. Um, and the, it's actually been known, we, again, we looked into it because we were worried to give it to patients who are not hypertensive. And it's been shown that actually if patients are not hypertensive, it doesn't cause much of a blood pressure difference because it's been used also for um, migraine headaches and other things. So, so it's, it's, that's why it's, it's actually rather safe. Um, and so we haven't had any... So the good news is, again, we don't know, we, ha we haven't seen any kind of, you know, huge beneficial effects, but we also have not seen any, um, any issues in terms of, of uh, side effects. Yes, please. So following up on the dose, in one of your slides you showed uh, that you needed up to 150 micromoles of verapamil to see an effect, and you're using fairly high doses in the animals. So I guess the question is, is this a channel effect, or is it another effect of Rapamil that you're getting it at very high exposure. Yeah, no, it's a, good, it's a good question. It's definitely a channel effect. I mean, you know, it's definitely just due to the calcium effect because we can mimic in vitro, we can mimic it with, with calcium chelators. So we know it's, a, it's just a calcium effect. There's nothing, unfortunately, it has nothing else, you know, there's no magic to the Rapamil because otherwise you could modify it somehow and you'd have a new drug. We don't have that luxury. Well, why, why do you think you need such high doses then? I mean, you don't need those kinds of doses to, to block the calcium channel. Uh, in vitro and in the mice you do. So actually the, the doses in the mice were based on old studies, how they, they analyzed it. It's with the higher metabolism, it is, it is roughly comparable to what you would need. In fact, we don't, um, in, in the mice with those doses, we even did uh, invasive blood pressure me uh, measurements, and they're not, they're, they're barely, they're not even significantly lower. So it might just require much higher doses of, of the drug. Yes? Um, you have shown that in vitro, a few models that um, when exposed to glucose, you would see expression, overexpression of Parkinson's. And have you had a chance to see if um, inhibiting the expression of the hypocarbonate from apoptosis? No, because I mean you you don't see it in, in, in that short period of time, and then also inhibiting. I mean you know that's, that's kind of uh, tough to do in, in the human islets um, in, in vitro. I mean you wouldn't be able to do that. 
So we'll have to wait and see what we get in terms of the results, unfortunately, of the trial. Any other questions? All right. Um, well, I should also mention that, that again, you know, I mean, the verapamil, it has a lot of pluses because it's been, as I mentioned, it's been FDA approved for 30 years. It's a pretty safe profile. But the disadvantage is obviously that, that it's a not a very specific um, medication to target TXNIP. And so uh, while we're doing the clinical trial with the verapamil, <coughs> I won't have time to go into this right now, but we have a very active uh, drug discovery program ongoing where we actually already screened 300,000 small molecules and we have some good hits for specific TXNIP inhibitors. So hopefully we're going to have, I mean, again, we use the verapamil more as a proof of principle that pharmacological inhibition of TXNIP can, can have beneficial effects. And then we're hoping down the road to come up with with a nice little small molecule orally available that we could use as an oral drug that specifically inhibits TXNIP and, and that we could replace uh, verapamil as a drug for diabetes. But again, since this is going to take time until that ever you know, can be translated into the clinic, we went ahead and with the next best thing that we have available that could get translated right away into the clinic if we see it in fact, and that's the, the verapamil because of its safety profile. <coughs> All right, so um, what I was trying to uh, show kind of here a little bit is um, that I already mentioned the glucose and diabetes-induced uh, TXNIP expression. There's a number of other groups that have shown that EOS trust also induces TXNIP, and I've shown you that uh, TXNIP causes beta cell death. But then more recently, we also found that TXNIP not only affects uh, beta cell survival, but also beta cell function, namely affecting insulin transcription. And I'll tell you kind of the story how we, how we found this, and I felt kind of bad that it took us so long to, to find it, I and mean, we went kind of a roundabout way to do that, but, but um, there it is. So anyhow, it started off with some unexpected findings, <coughs> namely, um, as I told you, I mean, TXNIP has been known to be a regulator of the cell redox state, and as such has been always uh, thought to be located in the, uh, in the cytosol. Um, but then uh, postdoc of mine, Gigi Saxena, found that it actually was localized in, in the nucleus. And then, um, and you can see that here in green, uh, is the TXNIP in red is insulin. And then we also saw that TXNIP overexpression overall inhibits gene expression. We did, we analyzed by microarray the, the um, TXNIP overexpressing uh, beta cells, and 95% of the genes were actually downregulated as opposed to the YZ overexpressing cells, which was kind of surprising, especially since TXNIP is not known to act as a direct uh, co-repressor or transcriptional inhibitor. So um, we started asking ourselves, could it be that TXNIP upregulates some microRNAs? And so just as a reminder, there are small, 20, roughly 22 nucleotide non-coding <coughs> RNAs that bind to the street prime UTR of target genes <coughs> lead to mRNA degradation or translation inhibition. And so with that in mind, we set out and we, we did a microRNA microarray, again using the TXNIP overexpressing cells. And again, um, we found that a number of microRNAs were upregulated at near 204, uh, particularly piqued our interest, uh, mainly because it was highly expressed in, in, in islets. And as you can see, it's, it was one of to five top microRNAs upregulated by TXNIP and it's fully conserved between human, rat, and mouse. And you can see here the, the sequence alignment. Um, and as I mentioned, it's highly expressed in human islets, and so uh, you can see at the expression level. Um, and so we wondered, could it have a role in beta cell biology? And indeed, uh, when we looked 
in again the Bennett mouse models, and here is the, the B6 OB and the BDBR OB. Um, mu 204 expression was significantly upregulated in both of them. We also looked at a non-obese model and the EAZIP, so this is a model of lipodystrophy, and then also mu 204 was upregulated. By the way, these guys, the EAZIP, also have increased XNIP levels, and we published it before. So it seemed like it, uh, this microRNA was upregulated in diabetes, actually kind of uh, further supporting the hypothesis that may play a role in uh, beta cell biology. We then also confirmed the, the microarray uh, data, and we saw that in the X1 cells, um, we saw a significant increase in uh, mu 204 expression by uh, real-time RT-PCR. And then in contrast, in the TixNIP deficient uh, islets, we see a reduction in, in mu 204 and the same is true in the beta-cell-specific TixNIP knockout uh, islets. So again, it seemed that TixNIP was regulating uh, mu 204 both in vitro and in vivo. So what function uh, does mu 204 have in the beta cell? And the first thing, obviously, we, we looked at is apoptosis because we knew already TixNIP induces apoptosis. <coughs> but in contrast to TixNIP, it did not affect apoptosis. And we looked at PAX-PCL, cleave caspase, and so So then we went to kind of the next best thing, which uh, we thought was beta cell function, insulin production. And um, we were very happy to see that, in fact, when we overexpress MIO204, uh, insulin expression goes down. And this is true in NIMS1 beta cells, but it's also true in primary human islets. And then, <coughs> consistent with that, uh, we also saw a decrease in insulin content and a decrease in insulin secretion, so both at the mRNA at the protein level. So, we then asked ourselves, does MIO204 target insulin directly? As I mentioned before, I mean, macroRNAs target the three primary TRM genes. Um, but we didn't see uh, any binding site for 204 in the insulin sheep primary TR, so that made us kind of um, a little uh, suspicious of the whole thing. And then also, when you expect a direct microRNA effect, you should not necessarily see a, a, a change in, in the target gene promoter activity, but we actually did see that. So when we looked at the insulin promoter, we saw a significantly decrease in response to um, MIO204 overexpression. In fact, it was half of, of the promoter activity was gone when we overexpressed 204, suggesting that it may not be a direct effect on the insulin gene, but rather it may affect some insulin transcription factors. And so here you have the usual suspects, obviously, of insulin transcription uh, with uh, PDX1, MAF, AFB, and NeuroD1. Uh, and so we were wondering whether any one of these transcription factors may be, may be mediating the effect of the MU204, and we started looking at them systematically. And so well, when we looked at this, and we looked at both MU204 overexpression as well as MU204 knockdown, um, but it neither had an effect on either PDX1, MAFB, or neurodegen. and we see that uh, in all these panels here. However, when we looked at a MAFA, we saw a significant reduction here at the mRNA level. We also saw a significant reduction at the protein level in response to MIO204 uh, overexpression. And then when we did chromatin immunoprecipitation studies, uh, these CHIP studies showed a significant reduction in the MAF-A occupancy of the uh, insulin promoter in response to uh, MIO204 overexpression suggesting, again, that, uh, that MAF-A might be mediating the, the MIO204 effect that we saw. 
In fact, looking closer at the MAF A uh, street prime UTR, see that here, it has a very nice complementary sequence to the seed sequence of the MIR 204. Um, and then uh, we did what you have to do, obviously, in these cases, uh, in the street prime UTR, the luciferase reporter assay to prove that it actually functionally um, is mediating, mediating the effect through the street prime UTR. And so you have the wild type street prime UTR here. Uh, hooked after the luciferase reporter gene, and when we overexpress mu 204 we see a significant reduction in, in uh, luciferase. However, when we mutate that seed sequence, that, that, sorry, the, the seed sequence binding area, um, then we run <coughs> this effect, suggesting again that the, this inhibition is mediated via this region in the street prime UTR. So we then also asked ourselves, well, since TixNIP is an upstream regulator of, of MIO204, could TixNIP mimic the MIO204 effects on insulin production, such as affecting MAFA, insulin mRNA, and protein levels? And in fact, it did. So here you can see that when we overexpress TixNIP, we get a reduction in MAFA mRNA, a reduction in MAFA protein. Again, this is also true in human islets. And then when we do the CHIP studies, again, we see a significant reduction in the occupancy of MAF-A uh, on the insulin promoter. We also saw a reduction in insulin production in response to TixNIP here. Um, it, the um, insulin message level here, again, in the human islets, uh, sorry, yeah, insulin um, message in the human islets, and then insulin content. Uh, as well as insulin secretion in response to the TCO <coughs> overexpression. So then we looked also at the opposite and we found that TixNIP deficiency actually promotes insulin production. And you can see here in the, this is the, the TixNIP uh, mute mice, they have an increase in islet insulin content, which is significant. And then we also wanted to see whether we can blunt this effect by mere tool for overexpression. So you can see here again the, the control uh, mice and then here the TixNIP uh, uh, mutant mice with the increase in insulin content. But when we uh, use those TixNIP deficient mice and we overexpress MIO204, we completely bring that effect down and blunt the effect back to the levels of the uh, control mice. So that served as a proof uh, of the causal relationship between TixNIP, MIO204, and uh, insulin. So, taken together, we believe that we have a pathway by which diabetes or elevated glucose levels lead to an increase in TixNIP expression. That increase in TixNIP expression results in an increase in MU204 expression, which then binds to the, with the seed sequence to the 3' UTR of MAF-A, reduces MAF-A expression. We have less MAF-A available to bind to the insulin promoter, and so that inhibits insulin transcription and we have less beta cell insulin. And as you can imagine, that obviously feeds back and, and leads to worsening of the hypoglycemia and it causes that vicious cycle. Now, now in retrospect, we also believe that some of that uh, also may have contributed to the effect uh, on the glucose homeostasis that I've shown you before in the TixNIP deficient uh, and in the TixNIP knockout mice. As I showed you, the MIO204 was altered in those, uh, in those animals. And so in addition to... Um, Preventing apoptosis, it also induces uh, production of insulin in the remaining beta cells. So once again, 
targeting TICSNIP might be beneficial in, in, in two ways. One is that it may promote beta cell survival, but then the few surviving beta cells are also expected to be more effective in producing insulin. So hopefully with that, the endogenous insulin production uh, would be uh, preserved and improved. So uh, microRNAs are involved in uh, insulin production. Some others uh, have been found. I told you the 204 story. The MIR-133A targets polypyrimidine tract binding protein and decreases mRNA stability, and that includes insulin, but it's very nonspecific because it's all RNA, so it's not just uh, insulin. And then MIR-24, 26, and 148, and 182 target transcriptional repressors of insulin, so kind of the, the opposite, uh, including uh, SOX6. Um, and then there are other examples of microRNAs uh, playing a role in beta cell biology. Obviously, MIOS 375, initially discovered by Markus Staffel, uh, was uh, the, the first and best studied microRNA in islets. It's highly expressed in the islet. Uh, it targets a vesicular transport protein, myotrophin, and inhibits glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. Um, in addition, MIOS 729 and 124 target vesicle fusion and snare proteins and inhibit glucose-stimulated insulin secretion. And then again, 375, 7, and 124 also regulate beta cell proliferation and differentiation, and MIO-29 has been implicated in, in beta cell survival. So you can see there's more as much as, since we learn more about the microRNAs, we also find more and more of them being involved in different aspects of uh, beta cell biology. And what we tried here is to kind of give a little bit of an overview of what's known so far about the microRNAs and in what processes in the beta cell they're involved. So you can imagine the majority, as you can see here in this Venn diagram, are involved in insulin production and secretion. And that, again, is actually what kind of occurred to us is, is relevant because it seems obviously microRNAs provide an, an additional level of control. And so if you have a process, biological process, that is very important, or that if it, if it would go rogue, it would really be detrimental to the organism, those are the processes that are more likely to be highly also controlled by microRNAs. And as you can imagine, I mean, for insulin production, if, this, if an organism would produce too much insulin, it would kill the organism. So we have a lot of microRNAs that play a role in, in this process. There's a, a bunch of them that play roles in uh, differentiation and proliferation. There's obviously overlap um, between uh, those as well. And then more recently, there were a few that were found to be involved in um, apoptosis and survival. And particularly, I want to tell the, the story of, of MIO-200. So um, we got interested in the MIO-200 osis through the microarray uh, that we did. Here's again the MIO-204 that I showed you. But then if you look at the other microRNAs that were increased right after that, it was 200C, 141, 200B, and 200A, and they actually all belong to the same group family of MIO-200 uh, with 429 as, as the fifth one that's not expressed in the S1 cells. Um, and so we were got interested in it, and it's very uh, funny how it, it came together. So we got interested in the MIO-200 based on their uh, increase in response to TICSNIP. And a um, student of mine, Stephen Fields, found that um, they're not only induced by TICSNIP, they also regulate uh, ZEP1 uh, signaling and lead to beta cell apoptosis. And so uh, we published this, and then Marcus Staffel came out with, with a paper where they did in vivo work, but actually knocked those um, microRNAs out and saw that it regulates pancreatic beta cell survival and type 2 diabetes. So we came from totally different uh, um, areas and, and were 
interested in the mu 200 for completely different reasons and found that um, both actually found that uh, this microRNA family plays a role in, in beta cell mitosis. <coughs> so that was kind of nice to see. And so to kind of just summarize that, we saw that, or we know that diabetes induces mu 200. We're not sure. I mean, it definitely TixNIP does too. We don't know whether TixNIP is absolutely crucial for this effect of diabetes on mu 200. And then when mu 200 is upregulated, it inhibits a number of anti-apoptotic factors listed here. It also, through some uh, indirect mechanisms, it also leads to a reduction in, uh, um, sorry, an increase in uh, proapoptotic factors. And so together, it leads to an increase in, in beta cell apoptosis, and obviously, again, the vicious cycle. And then we've also seen that um, mu 200 regulates EMT-related factors such as ZEP1, and so that may play a role in all the beta cell differentiation. That's still something that, that we're looking into. So it may have even uh, wider ranging effects than initially thought. What we also saw when just looking through, uh, through the literature, that not only, as you know, a lot of, uh, I mean, we know that microRNAs have, each single microRNA has a lot of different targets. So it kind of has this, uh, to some degree, non-specific effect. <laughs> But then we actually saw that the opposite can be sometimes true too, where a lot of different microRNAs converge on the same pathway. And one example is actually a very important transcription factor in the beta cell in the neuro-D. You can see here that near 19, 24, 30, as well as 124, they all directly target the 3' ETR of neuro-D. But then neuro-D is also regulated by neurogenin 3, and then neurogenin 3 in turn is regulated directly by near 15, 16, and 195. And then neuro D regulates uh, in its own right near 7 and near 375, and these microRNAs are then also regulated by PDX1. So you can see there's a whole network going on that regulates beta cell development, differentiation, and insulin production in that case. So again, it's very really striking to see how, how these networks actually exist, and I think we still only know kind of what's on the surface and there's still more to, to come, I guess, in this regard. So, to summarize, uh, we believe that microRNAs play various important roles in diabetes, including insulin production and secretion, beta cell differentiation and apoptosis, and I've shown you some examples for that. Uh, then multiple beta cell microRNAs are regulated by TixNIP, I've shown you the mu 204 and mu 200 and so TixNIP controls beta cell survival and function, and interestingly enough for us, in a way, after working on this protein for so long, both important things uh, are regulated in part via microRNAs. So uh, to conclude, we believe that microRNAs add an additional level of control and complexity to different biological processes, including beta cell function and insulin production. As I mentioned before, each microRNA has multiple targets, but uh, microRNAs directly uh, regulate target gene expression and also target transcription factors, and therefore can also regulate indirectly so, but still, uh, gene transcription. And so what we really believe is that understanding the function of these microRNAs better may lead to uh, potential novel therapeutic avenues potentially utilizing RNA therapeutics. therapeutics. As you know, this is already taking place in cancer, but I think uh, with also the cancer field is much far further ahead in terms of the microRNA field as compared to the diabetes field. So hopefully when we know more about the, the diabetes-related microRNAs, we'll be able to uh, design some of these approaches as well. 
So with that, I'd like to uh, thank the people in the group that did a lot of the work. Uh, Chen 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 uh, was a person generating the, the double mutant mice, and he's done a lot of the, the mouse work, especially in the early beginning, and continues to do so with the, with the eyelids. Uh, Guan Nan Xu is the postdoc now instructor, who's uh, done a lot of the microRNA work and has done the mute tool for work. Uh, he was the author of a major medicine paper, and then uh, Stephen Phillips is a, a PhD student who uh, wrote that, that review uh, with us and, and uh, did the mute 200 work and is now a postdoc at, at UCSF. And the other people I didn't have a chance to go too much into their work, they did other projects that I couldn't touch upon today. But um, that's the group. I also would like to uh, thank uh, various collaborators and obviously the, the funding without which we would not be able to do this work. And then finally, this is the campus. This is our Shelby building. As, as Laura mentioned before, we have kind of the, what they call a penthouse here on the 12th floor. It's very nice. Uh, but uh, obviously with turned faculty, there's uh, people scattered over campus. This is the uh, uh, green area on campus, and we have the cherry blossoms typically out by uh, March 1st. So this feels like home with beautiful weather. So thank you, and I'll be happy to take any questions. Yes? There's supposed to be an increase, a decrease in uh, beta cell survival at menopause due to the loss of estrogen. So do you know if Texnip is involved in this process or if it is regulated by estrogen? Do I know what is regulated by estrogen? I don't know. So, some, some studies have shown that, uh, proposed that uh, hyperglycemia is responsible for the loss of activity and some behavioral uh, modification in opioid Have you seen any change in this in the double? In the in activity and behavior. Uh, no, no. I mean, they look they look pretty much the same. We don't do particular studies of that, but you know, we watch them very carefully, and their their behavior seems to be like identical. I mean, they actually really not much different. Yes. And that was very nice. Actually, I was fascinated by the <laughs> STC uh, uh, studies that you did, and one of the things that it was interesting to me is that the beta cells seem to be extremely resistant to STC treatment. And there's not really a lot of models out there in which you use STC are pretty much is doing nothing to the beta cells. So do you think, I mean, did you look at, for example, people's transporters? Because uh, you know the STC <laughs> Of course, yeah, no. I mean, we know that it works. I mean, that was that the first concern that it doesn't affect GLUT2 and you're not getting the STC in there. Yeah, no, it does not. Yeah, so why are it so resistant? And it's not, they're not resistant. They're, they're, they, 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 uh, they have afterwards, they have, so the STC has its effect, and that's why it's so important that we're able to show it in the, in the ones where we make them diabetic. So this is, the STC is long gone, it's caused its, its problem, and then we treat and we see the revival, the reoccurrence of the beta cell. And but you're right, this is this is kind of this is the one thing that was very striking to us and that's what we're following up right now, because within this is actually within ten days. We pretty much we, we eliminate the beta cells and suddenly they reappear. How's that possible? Where, where were they? I mean, so I mean that could be total regeneration from some stem cells, it could be from some precursor cells. It could also be, and we're starting to kind of play obviously with, with that thought, especially here, you know, 
in, in honor of Mimo, um, that there's some de-differentiation going on, and then that we just see a redifferentiation because it's hard for me to believe that the, 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 the level of the amount of new beta cells with containing insulin is the novo synthesis of those cells. I just, I, from, from within 10 days, I just, I just, it's hard to believe. So I'm thinking that at least a part of it is probably due to some de-differentiation and re-differentiation that, that may be occurring. Um, and we're obviously looking into that, and especially with some of the microns, it like, might very well play, play a role. Did you look at the alpha cells during those 10 days? I mean, what happened with the alpha cell number? Pretty much the same. We didn't do morphometry for it, but, but they look identical. Yes. Know, yeah. yes? Yeah, I was, uh, the Verapamon story is interesting, and the animal data translation to humans in type 1 diabetes has been somewhat disappointing. Very much And so. I was interested to know if you looked at any animal data, say, in NODs about whether parabamil or an agent like that could be tried in antibody-positive pre-diabetic individuals, I think it's unlikely that a single agent in new onsets is going to be a home run. Um, and if you had a next step, like how are you going to define success in that pilot study? And what about kids? Because parabamil is not approved for kids. Do you have FDA approval to look younger than 18, for example? Yeah, those are all very good questions. So, so yes, I mean, the, the, the field is obviously plagued by the, the lack of translation from, from, an, from the animal model to, to, uh, to humans. Uh, I think, and that has, so I'll try to answer that part first, has, I think, several reasons. But one of them is also that most of the trials that have been tried to be translated were immune modulatory. And the one thing that's really different between mice and man is the immune system. And the whole autoimmunity of diabetes, we don't have truly a good model. The NOD is the best one, as you mentioned, but it's, it's really not the same as, as human uh, type 1 diabetes. So we don't have a good model. And then when you try to extrapolate from, from uh, data that you generated in mice that have a very different immune system um, onto humans, it's actually, to me at least, was not really surprising that it's not that successful. In contrast, uh, and again, we have no guarantees that it will translate, but in contrast here, we're dealing with a very well-conserved protein with a very well-conserved mechanism, and we've already seen effects on human islands. So from that, we're a little bit more confident. Now, having said that, I agree with you. I don't think that uh, probably one drug on its own right will, will you know, be the magic bullet and will help. And I think what we have to see first, I mean, I can't really uh, extrapolate right now what would be the addition, what will we combine it with, because I'm not sure what it would be. It could very well be some immune modulatory effect. However, I mean, I, I want to wait and see what we see in the trial and what the, what the endpoints are going to look like. We're obviously looking at certain inflammatory uh, cytokines and other things that we're going to analyze. Because again, I mentioned to you that tixin has been shown to play a role in inflammatory activation. So it also has this inflammatory component to it. So I want to see whether it, it may also interfere with at least some of the inflammation going on uh, in, in, in type 1 diabetes. But it may not be sufficient to obviously uh, alter it. Um, and then so there were a couple of questions, I think, in your thing. So, so the other thing was the. Uh, 
uh, issue of, of kids, and yes, actually one of the reasons we focused on adults was we, we did, it's not, a, I mean, it, Varapalo is a funny thing, so IV, it's approved in kids, but orally it's not approved in kids. Go figure, FDA. But so it's not approved, and so but we're waiting. Obviously, on the so we started with the adults. It was easier from from that uh, standpoint, and also in terms of of managing and doing the the mixed meal tolerance tests and all that stuff. Um, so we're doing it in the adults, but we obviously aware of it, and we 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 were in contact with um, you know with the FDA and have the paperwork that if we see something, we will go back in and get approval for for uh, for a trial in, in kids as well. So I mean, obviously. It, there's no there's no particular reason why you couldn't use it in, in kids. I mean, again, it's safe. It's I mean, it's actually probably safer than a lot of the immune modulatory stuff that kids are getting nowadays. But but you know, it's been out there for 30 years. So yeah, that that definitely would be uh, would be the next step. Yes. So I understand that the rapamil effect is calcium channel related, but what is the mechanism by which that's inhibiting the reaction? That's a good question. I didn't have time to show it, but yes, we studied it actually very, very carefully. So, so it, it, it lowers the anything that lowers the intracellular calcium, and that's true. So it's true, and the reason we know it's calcium again in vitro, even calcium chelators do the trick, and then we can also use other calcium channel blockers, and we see similar effects. We picked Rachnel because it has a good profile and it, it, it showed the, the, the strongest effect in, in vitro, um, and so the, the lowering of the calcium. Uh, leads to through the calcium urine pathway, and it actually affects uh, not NFAT, interestingly, we thought NFAT, but it wasn't NFAT, it, it affects NYA and B, and so it's a different, it's a different transcription factor that's regulated, not NFAT. Um, and that that binds, I mean, it, and it interferes with uh, with the tixinib uh, expression. And we've shown this actually. So, I mean, obviously, tixinib is there for a reason, and it gets upgraded for a reason. And so, you're knocking it down. Are there any long term, like, if you look long term consequences of not having tixinib? Like, do your beta cells start to? I mean, it looked like they were actually bigger. Do they? over time become less functional? Or? Yeah, we didn't see that. And we had we had these mice out, I mean, at least up to a year, and they're, they're, they're perfectly fine. And they don't, you actually know, they, if anything, you know, they're not, you know, they're, they're function perfectly fine, and their insulin levels are, are, are great. Um, but you bring up obviously another question, and that's, you know, what is it there for in the first place, and, you know, what happens in other tissues as well, and that obviously we were concerned initially. Um, so, you know, the, the, the question about other tissues, um, we actually, so what we're trying to target right now is not, not being beta cell specific. And the reason is that, that we and others particularly have shown that lowering tixinib is beneficial in other tissues as well. I mean, particularly the heart and that we've done as well, but, you know, our release group has done a lot of work in there. Um, it's also beneficial in the kidney. It's been shown that it's beneficial in the context of diabetic nephropathy. It's, Good for mesenchymal cells. It, it inhibits some of the fibrosis associated with it. Uh, it's good in the retina. So people have looked at that. So pretty much, it's hitting all the organ systems that are affected by diabetic, diabetic complications and lowering tissue shown uh, beneficial effects. So we actually are not attempting to be uh, tissue specific, and we think it, doing a systemic approach would be would be okay. 
uh, why is TextNet even there? Why do we have it? And I think, and it, it took some time for us to kind of come to terms with this, but um, the one thing we noticed in the, in the whole body TextNet deficient mice, the females are perfectly fine. The males, for whatever reason, when you, not when you, you can fast them and they're fine, but if you starve them overnight of 24 hours, some of them don't do well and they may just die. And, you know, it's, they get some inflammatory response, it get, it looks like by, by autopsy, it looks like peritonitis. Um, but what it seems is that they, um, they don't tolerate starvation so well. So based on that, we came up with the idea that it might be something in the, uh, along the lines of a thrifty gene that in the, in the old days, uh, and again, you know, this office had been somewhat controversial, but except for the ones that, that play a role in, in microorganism defense and, and oxidative stress, which TixNIP does. So in the old days, having a certain amount of TixNIP around may have been beneficial as we were kind of surrounded by microbes and had to defend ourselves. And then uh, they, um, you know, with the oxidative stress, and that was all good, while we have normal TixNIP levels, they're not detrimental at all. It's only when you get the increase above normal levels that occurs in diabetes where we start seeing all the, the, the negative effects. So now when we have this excess food and, 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 and calories and we, we get a potential increase in TixNIP, we may get into trouble. In fact, what we believe is that it could even be that we have a, a cumulative effect. I didn't mention, but TixNIP is a, an early response gene. So we see effects. I mean, when we look at CHRABP binding to the TixNIP promoter in response to glucose, we see an effect within 15 minutes. So it's very, very quick. So you can imagine if you have a little bit of glucose excursion, let's say post-granularly, uh, you may get an induction of TixNIP expression. It, it goes up very quickly, goes down very slowly. So you may get cumulative increase in TixNIP uh, in your beta cell, for example. With that, you, get, you start getting some apoptosis, you get higher excursion of glucose, and you get the vicious cycle of potential pathogenesis of at least type 2 diabetes. All right, thank you very much.